Welcome back to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Jason Rugg, joined, as always, by Christian Taylor. Hey, how are you, Jason? Great to see you today. Good. Yeah, really glad to be here. We're recording this in the morning, which we usually record in like the afternoon. And so, um, or, I don't know, I'm a little bit more sleepy than normal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as energetic as I, as I normally am. So, uh, Christian, do you want to uh, give a quick introduction to our guest who we have with us today? Yeah, this is Craig Renault. We're super excited to have you here today, Craig. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. Craig has got an exciting new project coming out. Actually, it actually has released already on PBS, um, but it's there. We really want people to see it. Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about Craig's bio and uh, this awesome project? Yeah, so the miniseries was, is called uh, Southern Storytellers, um, and it's from Peabody Award-winning filmmaker Craig Renault, who you just heard, uh, known for Dope Sick Love and Off to War. Uh, the miniseries follows some of the American South's most compelling and influential contemporary creators to the places they call home. The new three-part miniseries marks Craig's first project without his brother and longtime collaborator Brent, who was the first American journalist killed in Ukraine in 2022. Yeah, we're really yeah. glad to have you here. First Craig. of all, I do want to give you my condolences about your brother. Um, we would like to learn a little bit about him and um, what he was doing over in Ukraine. That's a particularly um, important um, you know, place for me right now because my son is deployed over there uh, in Romania on the border of Ukraine, and I worry about him every day. So I'm sure you had the same experience. And um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about him. I know he's been a co-creator in the past and uh, yeah, fill us in. Yeah. I mean, my brother and I always worked together from the very beginning of our careers. We started um, as interns at the downtown community television center in New York, working under uh, famous documentarian, John Alpert. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with John, look up his work. He's, um, he has a, a trophy case full of Emmys. I think he's won like 19 Emmys and, you know, DuPont and Peabody's, all of that multiple times. He's an amazing filmmaker. And we had just the good fortune of being interns at a community television center that him and his wife started in, in Chinatown in New York. Um, started as interns and then worked our way up to becoming his editors. And then, um, you know, slowly started going in the field with him and, and becoming, um, you know, DPs and then directors and producers. Um, and then when 9 11 happened, you know, DC TV is right there close to ground zero. And that kicked off a whole nother part of our career that was unexpected, which was covering conflicts. You know, John, John was a longtime foreign correspondent for NBC News. He used to do these. Um, he wasn't a full time employee there, but he was a filmmaker that they would bring on and he would do reports from all around the world um, covering different wars. And and he had not been doing a lot of wars because, was, as you remember, before 9-11, it was a more peaceful time. And, and when 9-11 happened, he just said to us, you know, I think you're at a point in your career where you're ready, but I'm not going to pressure you to go to war zones. And we thought about it and decided we would do that. So, um, you know, we never set out to be people that cover conflict. It, it happened by chance. Um but once we started doing it and you get a name for it and people know that you're capable of going to conflict zones safely, um, those opportunities keep arising. So we made a career out of it. Um, you know, we did Off to War, which you mentioned, which was a 10 part series for the Discovery Times channel where we embedded with Arkansas National Guard unit for a full year in Iraq. Um, you know, that was supposed to be a peace and stability mission. 
um, got over there and immediately um, the guys started, you know, lose, losing men and we were embedded with them for a year and saw a lot of combat during that time. And, um, you know, and we covered uh, the drug cartel war in, in Mexico for the New York Times for a number of years, um, covered the Haiti earthquake. Um, you know, so we were in lots and lots of dangerous places for a long time. Um, my brother is, is not married, does not have kids. Um, once I had a kid, I, I didn't completely stop, but I, I scaled back. Um, you know, and my brother continued to cover conflict zones. Um, we pretty much went everywhere. Uh, pretty much every major conflict since 9-11 we have covered and covered it well. So, but it was never, you know, even all that being said, it was never about covering conflict. I mean, we were always documentary filmmakers first. It was always about the subjects and the people that were going through war and trying to allow viewers to understand what it was like on the ground. You know, it's kind of like peeling back news stories and taking a deeper dive through characters. Um, you know, and my brother was, was, one of the best at it. And he was over there. We were doing a, a documentary about refugees. Um, I was a producer on the project. I did not go to Ukraine with him. Um, and Ukraine was an unexpected part of that documentary. We were actually pretty much done filming it. And then Ukraine broke out and it was a documentary about refugees. And so we just, you know, had a discussion about it and it felt like that that would be an oversight to not cover Ukraine with it being the, the largest refugee crisis to date. Um, and so he made a decision to go over and it was going to be a pretty quick trip. It was going to be a week long trip. Um, it, in the beginning, we talked about just sort of covering the border and people fleeing out. But, you know, my brother is, he's tenacious. And once he gets into a story, he's not going to stop until he feels like he's gotten exactly the story he wants. And, you know, each day we would talk multiple times a day. Um, you know, and he started off at the border and then he, you know, would go a few, uh, uh, another day and would push in a little bit further. He ended up extending his trip by a few days because he was he was really looking for that one family or that one story that could perfectly show people what it was like to have your, your home destroyed and have to pack up everything that you own and, and travel out of Ukraine. And, and he hadn't quite found that story. And so, um, you know, he pushed up into which is where he was ultimately killed. Um, and the day that he was killed, they were covering, or they, they had seen a bridge that had been destroyed and they wanted to try to meet a family that was fleeing. Um, but the, the car that they were in couldn't go any further. So uh, Brent and Juan Arredondo, who was a colleague, um, got out of the vehicle that they were in and started walking to try to get to these refugees that were fleeing. Um, and then a civilian, a couple of civilian cars, you know, were helping people evacuate. And the third car that came up to them, the guy spoke English and offered them a ride and they, they accepted. Um, and the guy was going to try to drive them up to where, uh, people were fleeing, you know, basically to the front lines of the con conflict where the Russians had just come in. Um, you know, so wrong place at the wrong time. They got in the vehicle, drove about 15 minutes and then one spotted somebody with a gun in a trench who raised up their AK and, and then opened fire. And, um, you know, and so they, they came under fire from it. What's from Juan's memory, it seemed like multiple soldiers firing on them, Russian soldiers firing on them. Um, and my brother, you know, took a bullet to the neck and, and seemed like he died instantly. Juan was injured. 
um, he took around to the back and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was, it was a, a crazy moment. I mean, I pretty much found out as it was happening, Juan called me, um, you know, so I pretty much was on the phone with Juan in real time as this was taking place or, or pretty quickly afterwards. Um, and then within 24 hours, I was on a plane to go over there and try to get Juan out of there and, and get my brother back because, um, U.S. Embassy had pulled out already. You know, the war was getting really bad and it just seemed like we would not have gotten Brent home if, if I didn't go. So I spent about a week working really closely with Ukrainian journalists on the ground to just figure out a way to get, to get him out. And we, we managed to do that. That is just such a, a heart wrenching story. I mean, on all fronts, whether it's your own family or those freeing that, you know, soldiers would directly target, you know, civilians um, like that. It just seems so unbelievably brutal and, I can't imagine the trauma, um, you know, that it must have felt like for you. And maybe there was some sort of familiarity after you had already been embedded for a year with combat. And um, the closest I have come to that is, you know, I had a son, my oldest son was in a conflict in Afghanistan. And I did um, talk with him often. And he was in about 36 firefights. And you know, every day you wonder if this is going to be the last and um, you imagine the worst when you can't be there. And, um, you know, the only way I made peace with it, and I don't know, I'd love to hear how you have, but, you know, this is what my son's passion is. You know, he is a warrior and he wanted to be in the midst of where things were happening to be able to help in any way he could. And I've always felt that if, his, you know, life ended in the midst of something like that. He would have died doing something that he wanted to do and that he was passionate about. And, um, you know, I, you just have to let go and love the ones you love the way they want to be loved. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I even from the moment I found out or had confirmation, there was never, there was never a thought of, um, it was just complete peace knowing that my brother died of doing exactly what he's supposed to do. You know, it doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make you grieve less, but it does, you know, bring a lot of peace. Um, you know, and, and even, even me now, you know, being a storyteller and having the career as a documentary filmmaker, you know, I don't have to try to go wrestle with that while I do a nine to five job that's not related to to how my brother was killed. You know, I get to make films like Southern Storytellers that I can dedicate to him. And, and I'm, I'm working on a film about him right now. Um, you know, I filmed my whole journey going over there. I, I recovered all of his footage that he filmed. Um, and so, you know, Juan Arredondo, who was injured with my brother, him and I are working on a film as we speak, you know, so, so absolutely, you know, and, and me having been in those places with him, you know, you know the risks from from day one. I, I can't say I was surprised that this is how my brother passed. Um, I pretty much expected it if he continued to go to these places. And um, so, absolutely, absolutely at peace with it. Um, yeah. You know, and and I, and I feel fortunate that you know Brent happened to be the first journalist killed, and and because of that, he got a lot of attention and um, a lot of close colleagues of ours. You know, immediately got onto the news and 
And there was a lot of great coverage talking about the type of, type of work that Brooke does. And I, I felt really fortunate about that, too, because there's so many journalists that are killed that you never, we never really even hear their names because there's been so many killed at this point. Um, and the same goes for, you know, for people on the ground, soldiers on the ground, everything else. So there's, you know, a lot of silver linings to it. And um, I think as a, as a documentary filmmaker, he has a, a, a very big legacy, and, you know, so I feel yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I will look forward to that next documentary and we'll have you back um, when that's completed. It's going to be powerful. I know um, you brought up Southern storytellers. That's what we're here to talk about. I do know that's your first documentary, um, you know, because I read in your bio that you did without Brent. And one of the things I was very curious about is how is it different? What were you missing? Um you know, I only know a small bit of that because the editor that I work very closely with has been very busy as I'm doing my next project. And I feel like there's a piece of me, uh, you know, my creative partner is kind of not there right now. And that's challenging. Um, tell me what was different for you as you went through this process without him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly the workload is, is harder because, you know, my brother and I had gotten to the point where we were pretty much interchangeable, whether we were editing or shooting or directing, you can't really tell the difference of our, of our footage. Um, so it's just kind of cutting yourself in half, so to speak, you know, where I'm having to double my work and it's, and it's hard to replace that. You know, it's yes. not, it's not easy to go out, you know, and find a, a collaborator who has worked at this point for over 20 years together. Um, that seamlessly, you know, but we have, we have trained and developed a lot of filmmakers along along the way. And so some of those, actually a, a number of those filmmakers worked on Southern Storytellers. So that was great because it was people who did know how to shoot our style. Um, and, you know, and then Juan Arredondo, who was injured with Brent, is somebody that had been learning from Brent directly in the field. And and he came onto this project. And I think for him and I both, it was it was a great opportunity to heal as well um, you know i think any artist filmmaker storyteller can relate to the fact that you know your only way to heal and process is to keep working and, and keep telling stories and um, i would get comments from people all the time about oh i think you need time to rest you're just you know pouring yourself into work and it's it's actually completely opposite you know it's like i felt closest to brent and I felt the most um, healthy if, if I'm continuing, you know, to do exactly what we've always done. And, and so, so in that way, it was helpful, you know, just, just kind of put your head down and, and keep, keep moving forward with, with the word. Well, I appreciate you talking about him and his impact. The film that I did, The Girl Who Wore Freedom, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, veterans um, who were in World War II and the importance of remembering the real heroes who were the ones that never made it home. That's what they always talked about. And um, we learned that the importance of the veterans' healings that you know, survived was in telling their stories. Mm -hmm. And so as they shared their stories and as the French people listened, uh, they were healed from their oppressive, oppressive, horrible memories. And so I can really, I feel the truth of that as you're talking based on my own experience. When we tell our stories, there is healing within. And so thank you. We want to honor your brother's memory. I wish I would have known him. Um, and I know that he is forever in your heart and your work. Um, I will tell you, I 
watched this series and I did not see anything that was missing. Um, I felt like this was a, a beautiful uh, series. This is about Southern storytellers and who they are and what makes them unique. Um, I related to it immediately as a Southern storyteller growing up in Southern Mississippi. There were, um, I, I was telling Jason, we were texting back and forth last night. I was looking at some archival footage and I lived in Oxford, Mississippi for a time. And I said, you know, in my mind, I was saying, gosh, that really looks like that really looks like Oxford. I think that's the square. And then I heard the narrator say, you know, Oxford, Mississippi, the square in Oxford, Mississippi. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's so familiar. Anyway, it was, it was just beautiful. The cinematography was beautiful. Um, the stories were beautiful. The music, it was very filled with music and poetry. Uh, I enjoyed those. The one thing I did wonder um, is I related to the stories. They felt familiar to me. They were long and wandering. Um, I got it right away because I have listened to Southern storytellers and been part of that right. world forever. So in a sense, you were exemplifying how Southern people tell their stories by, you know, telling your stories in the same way. I wondered though, if you ever did any screenings of different audiences to see whether or not they connected with this, like I did. I mean, we just had a, a, it was the first public screening I have been to with, with the series. We showed the first episode um, at the Crystal Bridges Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas, and it was a packed house, probably 500 people. Um, and it was a great reaction. I mean, I love, I love those screenings because, you know, so often with television documentaries, you don't get to have those experiences if you don't premiere at a film festival. So, um, you know, that's nice when you, get affirmation when people are laughing at the right moments and reacting. And, and we had a wonderful conversation afterwards. Mary Steenburgen came and Kui Gwen, who was featured in episode two came and um, yeah, it could, could not have been better. It was, it was, it was really great, you know, and we did purposely, you know, pace the series to match Southern storytelling. You know, I did not feel it was appropriate to have, you know, a documentary that's kind of the pace of the way things are now and people's attention spans of shorter and shorter and shorter content. I mean, my brother and I have always been cinema verite filmmakers to begin with. So we are longer format storytellers, but on this particular series, you know, whether it's somebody's song, like Jason Isbell playing a new song, or if it's Jer Jericho Brown reading a poem, how do you chop up somebody's poem? I mean, that makes no sense. You know, you, you have to do it in its entirety, the same thing. Um, with the songs, you know, we really tried to play as much as the songs as, as we had time for. So, and it is, you know, I mean, a lot of this was shot during the summer times in the South and edited during the summer and the pace in the South, especially in the summer is slow, you know, storytelling is slow. And, um, you know, so that, that was all purposeful. And so I'm, I'm glad that that was evident. You know. Yeah, it certainly was to me. Um, you mentioned Mary Steenburgen. Uh, the thing that I thought was interesting was I didn't feel like you led the promotion of this um, series with all the stars that were in it. However, there were some heavy hitting names in here. Uh, and I was surprised. It was kind of like this present every time someone came on the screen. Um, how difficult was it to, you know, to find these people and, and get them to be part of your story? Um, it was challenging in the beginning, but I think what really helped is that this was a PBS series. And I think PBS 
as a brand has, you know, a great reputation. And I think it's a brand that people trust and that storytellers trust. We all grew up on PBS. There wasn't a single, single storyteller that I interviewed that didn't have some sort of PBS story as a child, you know, and so I think that really helped. And once you get the momentum going and you get, you know, one name on there, then it helps to get, to get more and more. And so, so yeah, it just kind of it grew as we got into it. But I also think that the subject matter, of storytellers just, you know, it's, it's the core and in, in the heart of, of these writers, because I think, especially for some of the celebrity people, it's like they, they get known for certain things, but I think their heart is in the writing. Um, yeah. You know, Mary Steenburgen is an Oscar winning actress. And I don't think many people realize that she's, she's a fantastic no songwriter. I had no idea. And I also didn't know she was married to Ted Danson. Yeah. I, mean, that was, I was like, at first I was like, is, is that Ted Danson? Like, yeah, that kind of sounds like, but I don't think you ever put his name up. Like only did I know it was Ted when she said, you know, my husband, Ted. And I was like, what? Yeah. That was a cool surprise. Yeah. you And I didn't know too, like um, Billy Bob Thornton is in this and I didn't really know that he was a, a writer in any sense. I thought he was just an actor. Um, what I enjoyed about all of them, but in particular Billy Bob's, is that, you know, we weren't talking about their celebrity or anything about that part of their life. It was just their life. Walking to a park, seeing their dog. Um, you know, did you intentionally try to make it that way so we're getting to know them as people? Yeah, we wanted it to be intimate. Um, that's always been the approach. I mean, the goal for us as, as filmmakers is to get access, right? And it's, <laughs> you start with a, a foot in the door to show up and then you hope that you, you hit it off well with them and that they invite you back. Um, you know, and we were pretty successful with that. You know, Billy Barb invited us back so that we were able to go back and, and get him to, to give us access to his family and meet his family, which I thought was really special. Yeah. Um, and then somebody like Adia Victoria, you know, in the beginning, we were kind of told by the, by her team that, you know, she's probably not going to open up her personal life. So don't expect that. And then, you know, if she's cooking us dinner, then she's like, why don't you come back for my wedding and shoot my wedding? You know? And so yeah. that's, that's kind of the goal as a documentary filmmaker. You just try to try to just get in there and, and not, not um, wear out your welcome, you know? And, yeah, that was beautiful. I felt that intimacy in all of those. Um, the moment that brought me to tears, honestly, um, and I don't remember her name, but um, she's the author of The Hate You Give. Mm-hmm. What's her name? Angie Thomas. Angie Thomas. When she went to the playground, like where she grew up, I'm going to get emotional talking about it. Yeah. And she just said, Hey, do you guys want to come be on camera or, and they just kind of said, well, what are you doing? She just said, Oh, it's a documentary. It was also nonchalant, you know, like there was no camera there at all. And that's the way I felt like you guys were a fly on the wall everywhere. And they just ran over so excited. They had no idea who she was. And when she said who she was, they like freaked out, you know, and they were just so excited to talk to her in this random place, but she automatically did what she wrote her stories for, which is starting to mentor these little kids in her neighborhood. I mean, it was very overwhelming um, and, and really beautiful, really beautiful. 
Yeah, that, I mean, those are the moments that you hope you're recording at the time and that you don't screw up, you know, because you can't you can't recreate those. So that was a fortunate moment that, that I was recording when those kids came up and just kept the camera rolling. Um, but it was a beautiful moment. You know, we had just filmed her at home talking about that she writes for young people and that people often ask her, well, why don't you write for adults? You know, and she she wants to inspire young people. She was bullied as a child and to the point where she you know, contemplated taking her own life. And, and that's, that's who she wants to write for. And she had just started talking about how she loves breaking stereotypes of these young African-American kids, especially boys, you know, that, oh, that they don't read her books and they do, they're huge fans. She's a huge following. So she had just talked about that to us. And then you go to this park where every stereotype that comes to mind is probably, you know, swirling around. And then again, she breaks it right there in front of everybody. I mean, these kids, reacted to reading her book the way they would have um, any other genre. And it was really beautiful. And, and yeah, she's such an inspiration. And yeah. uh, when we went to the, the y'all festival with her, which is, um, you know, young adult readers festival. I mean, she's like a rock star. I mean, kids are lined up around the corner for hours wanting to get her out of there. Yeah. I just felt like you gave us this intimate access. I felt like I knew these people, uh, in a totally different way, not not their celebrity, anything, but them personally. And it was just super um, heartwarming. Uh, and there is such a stereotype um, of the South, right? And I mean, they even talk about it. A lot of them talk about it. And I've, I've felt this where I grew up in Laurel, Mississippi. It's where Leontine Price came from. It's where Tom Lester came from, Ebb of Green Acres. It's where a whole host of creative people came from. And um, I lived in Oxford, Mississippi. So William Faulkner was from there as well. Um, there's just, you know, tons, but people label us in a certain way and they don't really realize uh, that deep root of, of life and art that is birthed out of a place of pain, uh, honestly. Uh, and I've been grappling a lot with my own past. I lived through segregation there in my town. Sam Bowers was the head of the Ku Klux Klan, went to my church and lived down the street from me. And I grew up listening to, my dad was there the night they discovered the three civil rights workers that were killed in Mississippi. He was driving to college at Ole Miss. So I grew up with all of these stories, the negative, terrible ones, um, this reminded me of all of the beautiful things that can come out of the South and the beauty that is in the midst of the difficulty. You know, yeah. that's what I love that you did. You didn't characterize us. Yeah. That, you know, that was a hope that we had, um, you know, the project started out of a conversation with Bill Garner at PBS. We, we had done um, my partnering station and producing station was Arkansas PBS. So this was a, a Southern collaboration between my company and Arkansas PBS. Courtney Pledger was executive producer and the head of Arkansas PBS. And she created the series with me. And um, from the early conversations with Bill Gardner at PBS, it was about, you know, this needs to be told by Southern storytellers, by Southern filmmakers. You know, and Courtney and I just set out to to try to do that, to just make sure that we're not just repeating these same over-romanticized stories about the South, um, you know, and so many of the stereotypes about the South that, of course, any Southern doesn't want to repeat. 
But then we also just wanted to give like a really open runway for these writers to, to talk about what they wanted to talk about. You know, the series is not about reviewing their books or their movies or we never even get into that, you know? Um, so we would approach them and, and have lots of discussions before we showed up filming saying, what's on your mind? What do you want to talk about? You know, and take a writer like David Joy in Appalachia, you know, he wanted to talk about the disappearance of mountain culture then. And, and he did not want to focus on the stereotypes of Appalachia. He wanted us to go meet African-Americans who had lost their land. He wanted us to meet, um, you know, the people who, who visibly represent the stereotype, but, but in a very complex way, go tell their story about the fact that there's erasure of their culture. And then, and then you see those themes play out across um, different cultures throughout this whole um, series, you know, in different places. If you watch episode three, and we go with Jasmine Ward or Natasha Trethway, both brilliant writers. Um, they're both from the Gulf, Gulf, uh, Gulf Coast, and they are also talking about erasure of culture, you know, and so it's these, these themes of the South that are there and they're present. Um, it'll just allow these writers to, to cover what they wanted to, to express. I was just in Orange Beach, Alabama, actually, which is on the Gulf Coast. And I used to go there when I was a little girl. And it was just kind of like a backwater fishing village, you know, where it was just this beautiful, undisturbed nature. And now it's just so over, you know, grown with umbrella, beach umbrellas and, you know, high rise condominiums. And, you know, it's just, it's not the same at all. And so I did identify in episode one with this story of the land being taken away. And at the same time, I was a little bit confused, like, um, because it sort of felt like, are we going to talk about this problem? And, uh, you know, are we solve? is this about, you know, uh, this problem? And what, what, what it was interesting as I got into episode two, I realized it wasn't necessarily an expose on that problem. It's just that you were trying to cover what they were interested in and covering. And so you did stick with the story, even though it kind of didn't fit your storyline. You know, you didn't set out to make an expose on people destroying West Virginia. You, you know, we're following the stories. So that was, how hard was that to make that decision? I, I wonder, you know? It was very hard and it, and it kept shifting, you know, from the beginning concepts to the end. Um, it, it had to keep shifting even in the edit up until the end, you know, because I mean, we captured some great moments and scenes with individual writers. Um, you know, and as you know, as documentary filmmakers, you always overshoot because you, once you get in the edit, you need all that footage. And, and so it starts to be a challenge of how do you organize those stories? How deep, how deep do you get into these individual scenes? I mean, I could have done an entire episode of David Joy just about, um, you know, land development and the disappearance of culture. So, so in the end, we felt like we needed to cover as many storytellers as possible. We felt like we would introduce introduce these issues but but the focus was the storytellers you know the overall main subject of this piece is the south um and so even though we did pace it slow we also wanted to keep it moving and so that you could meet as many great storytellers as possible but then in the end what we started to see was these themes getting repeated you know a lot of these themes overlap one another um, and each of the writers and play out in different ways. And so it was just, you know, a lot of this was found in the edit. Um, 
just hours and hours and hours of playing around with the structure and and trying to figure out how all that best fit together. Yeah. One thing I love that you did was that you asked them about their process. What is their process as a writer? That was very interesting to me to learn because it's different for every single person. Uh, but it gave me some ideas, honestly, as a writer. I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. Um, you know, were you surprised by that? Is that something that you intended to ask them? Did that come you know, organically? I mean, I'm, I'm always very interested in how other artists work as well. And, and with this, you know, I, I think the theme that we really wanted to explore in this, and I thought about this a lot on the approach is, you know, if I could go back in time when Eudora Welty was young or Maya Angelou was young, and fortunately there's all this great archival footage out there of those writers when they're, they were young that we sprinkled in there. But those moments are what I was thinking about as I went to approach these writers, because, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, you kind of need people to be doing stuff. And these are writers who, who usually are probably on their computer writing, you know? And so I had to really think about what am I going to be asking them? What are they going to be doing? Um, and, and how do you talk about their, their process uh, while you're doing those things? But I, I do feel like this moment of time that we're in as a country, as a region, you know, it's it's always writers. It always has been writers who are able to contextualize these moments in a way that makes any sense. You know, and and that's what I really wanted to hear from them was what was on their mind and and how they see the world right now. And I and I do feel like these contemporary writers that we covered, they are going to be the people that are talked about in a few hundred years as the best writers of their time. Yeah. Um, so it was just to, to to have that opportunity to hear about their process to me was fascinating. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, I, you mentioned Maya Angelou. Uh, I have to say the archival footage you found of her reading her own poem, I'd never seen that before. And it was amazing. Uh, so I want to thank you for uncovering uh, some of those things. I hadn't seen some of the pictures that Eudora Welty had taken. So I feel like you gave us a gift in uncovering stuff we wouldn't have normally seen. So um, did you have a difficult time trying to find archival things like that, or was it pretty easy? Um, difficult in the sense of just finding the right moments that fit into what you're doing and, and that you're not just throwing it in there to throw it in there, you know, and trying to find moments from those writers that played off of either what you're about to see with a writer or if somebody referenced Eudora Welty. <laughs> um, Adia Victoria talked about Eudora Welty a lot. So it was, you know, really digging for the perfect moments. Um, you know, thank God for YouTube. There's a lot more quickly accessible than there used to be. I mean, when we did a film for HBO about Little Rock Central High School and the desegregation crisis there, um, at that time, there was not the sort of quick availability of archives and it was a much longer process. Um, but yeah, it was really just, you know, in the moment of editing, trying to find the right clips. You know, some, sometimes you'd be up all night frustrated trying to find something that, that fit that didn't work. But we found some found some really good ones and stuff that I had never seen of Ralph Ellison and Tennessee Williams and Eudora Welty and Maya Angelou. Um, yeah, I was, I was definitely geeking out on that once I found them. Yeah, for sure. Well, did you have an archival producer or did you just do all that yourself? No, and I wish I had. I wish we had budgeted more for archival. Um, but it's just one of those things that evolved as we as we got into it. You know, I, I had an early idea, and Courtney and I talked about this about 
you know, sp sprinkling in writers from the past. Um, and, and we envisioned that it would be through archival, but I don't think we fully, it just evolved, you know, and the same thing with the music. We did not plan on having that much music in it. You know, originally we were going to do a series about more literary writers. And then we decided to open it up to songwriters, which I'm glad that we did. Um, but for filmmakers, yeah, you, you really want to think about things like music budget and archival budget early on, because when you just start doing it, you, you know, you can, you can run up your, your price tag quite a bit, but, um, but in the end, you would just want to make the best film that you can make. Yeah. We talked to, um, uh, you know, other writers who had, uh, some incredible mu music in their documentary of human footprint. And it, you know, I was so incredibly curious, like how in the world could you afford to put that music in there? And they explained to me that as long as it's on PBS, it's free to use. But if we take it anywhere else, we're going to have to pay for it. And I'm assuming that's the same for you. Yeah, they have a nice compulsory license where you can use popular music for a broadcast. But, you know, that's becoming even more limited because most people are streaming it now. And so for home entertainment, Anything that's outside the broadcast, you do have to pay for the licensing. Um, so you have to take that into consideration and think about replacing it with comp composed music. And then sometimes it just doesn't really work to replace it. We had a lot of performances in this of songwriters, and and that's part of the content. So it's not like you can just go dub over their performance with some other piece of music. So you do have to pay for that stuff. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I learned by mistakes on every single film. It's like I would, I would do it very differently and, and a lot more cost-effectively next time or, or think ahead on stuff. Let's talk about that because we do have an audience of filmmakers who are trying to learn. Um, talk to me about you know your discovery in this, what you would do differently, what mistakes you made, what advice you would give uh, to filmmakers kind of starting out. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say that. I mean, I just think it's part of the process. You know, I, I don't know that I have ever made a film in my entire career where I envisioned exactly perfectly what it was going to be. It's it, it's all a process. It's a journey, you know, and, and you try to prepare yourself, especially from a budget standpoint and, and have the budget you need to work with it. But it's always discovery. Um, and I think most good filmmakers are never going to cut themselves off and say, OK, well, I've reached my limit of, of my editing budget. So I'm going to stop editing now and just, just hand, hand this in, you know, like I've always, always gone way over budget with the editing and my hours. It's just, you know, and that's something I miss my brother his presence because, you know, for us, that was the fun part, you know, those late night hours of grinding it out to four in the morning, right up to the deadline when you absolutely have to turn it in. And that's where the magic happens. That's where you discover these perfect clips. Um, you know, and so if you're not into that part of the process, you probably should not be a filmmaker if that doesn't excite you. You know, if if, if that feels like painful work, um, then it's probably not the right career path for you. But I, I love that. And yeah, and you learn. But then even what I learned in this is not going to apply to my next project because they're all so different. You know, so I just I, I try to map out a vision. You know, I would say this pretty much stuck to to the vision, but but yeah, it, it changed and grew and you know and and kept changing. So it is it is just part of the process. I I think for people earlier in your career, I would just say you're not crazy. Like I think we all have those moments, and I had it all the way up until I probably delivered the 
each rough cut where I feel like every project's going to be complete disaster and failure. And I, I have those moments late at night where I feel like this is never going to come together. And, you know, holy crap, how am I going to pull this off? And we just keep grinding it out. Um, you know, and the only thing that gets better with experience is realizing that you have that moment in every single thing that you make. So you calm down a little bit more later in your career. Yeah. What I'm learning as I'm listening to you speak is I have only made one film and and a short film that's related. Um, I'm in the process of two others. And in my mind, I was thinking, okay, I've made all these mistakes before. Let me figure out how not to make those mistakes again and do this the right way. Uh, But I'm also learning now there is no right way. And you're kind of confirming that, that you're still going to make mistakes as you go along. I mean, if you're saying I still made mistakes and there's other things I would do differently with your resume, I'm assuming that's certainly going to be the truth for me and for other filmmakers that you're going to make mistakes. And if we judge ourselves and, and that's where I struggle is really judging myself as a bad person or a bad filmmaker because I made mistakes or I went over budget or I, you know, shot something I didn't need to shoot and waste people's time and money. Um, but you're telling me I just need to get comfortable with that. Oh, for sure. And, and you know, the, the nice thing of learning from John Alpert, you know, John was one of the pioneers of, you know, early cinema verite editing, or, I'm sorry, filmmaking and that whole process. And, um, and I'm glad we learned that way because we started off as editors, then we became DPs, then we became directors and producers. So we're capable of doing every bit of it. And I think the more you can do that as a filmmaker, the further you can get. If you don't have to rely on paying an editor by the hour to edit your footage, you know, because in the end, you are going to run out of money if you're doing that and you're kind of stuck if you don't know how to solve that yourself. I'm, I'm always, I always have my hands on my computer at the very end of the project making it perfect um you know if i screw up a shoot which i do often even to this day nobody knows about it except for me <laughs> it's just kind of like you know and i i, I try to not make a lot of those mistakes but it, it happens you know you can't you cannot control every environment there's some days you're going to be off there's other days your equipment's going to going to be off um and just keep pushing your way through it so that you have enough to to make a good film yeah, never quit. That's what I learned yeah. from Ken Burns. You, uh, that is the number one thing you are, um, you know, you can never, never quit. If you love this, you have to keep going no matter what you encounter or how bad things get. Um, and it sounds like your brother lived that life. It sounds like you're following in his footsteps as well. And that's the biggest encouragement I take from you and your brother is to kind of approach filmmaking from that point of view and uh, just press on. So I hope you will continue. I look forward to the stuff you're working on now and uh, can't wait to see what comes next. Yeah, I'm excited about it. So now we uh, are going to go into our segment that we'd like to call DocuView Deja Vu. All right, Craig, we asked you to bring a documentary that you would recommend. What you got? Yes, I actually just watched yesterday on a plane, uh, The Summer of Soul, which was directed by The Roots Questlove, um, which was a brilliant piece of filmmaking with with archival gold, and I I highly recommend watching that film. Awesome. Where can we find it, Jason? It's on Hulu. Okay, great. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that. Mine's going to be real quick. It's Mercury 13. Uh, It's out right now on Netflix. It's the story of these women that 
basically were training to go to the moon uh, at the same time Buzz Aldrin and, you know, Gus Grissom and uh, John Glenn were all doing it. They took the same tests. They passed. Uh, and then their program was just squelched. Uh, we talked to some of those women who were alive and uh, it was a, it was a great story. I highly recommend it. Loved learning. Uh, Jason, do you have one today? Yeah, I do. Um, mine's actually a little bit strange. Um, it's it kind of toes the line between an extremely long form interview and a documentary. Um, so I recently rewatched uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and just a phenomenal movie. And I was kind of curious about how they pulled off the like almost black and white, but kind of sapia tone at the beginning and the end of of the film it starts out you know not in color and then it becomes color and it just kind of fades up and so i was curious how they did that and i stumbled across this two hour long youtube video with conrad hall who was the cinematographer for american beauty butch cassie and sundance kid cool hand luke you know just a, a whole bunch of amazing movies has three academy awards is um and it's <laughs> it's an interview with him, but it's kind of just a, a slice of his life. So like they're in the middle of an interview and he just kind of gets up and starts walking around his house and he's just like pacing back and forth and they're, they're following him and then he gets a phone call and he's in the middle of an answer. And he goes, I got to take that. And he just, <laughs> and it's, it's really fascinating because he's answering all these questions and talking about camera moves and lighting and they're cutting to showing examples from his work of, you know, road to perdition and American beauty and, you know, just these stunning visuals. And he's, just talking about it, just talking about making movies and, and how he got into it and their chemical process on the film and overexposing or underexposing. And it's just a really fascinating uh, little slice of his life talking about his body of work. And um, yeah, I believe it was shot. It was shot before 2003 because he passed away in 2003. So, so how would we find it on YouTube? It's master cinematographer Conrad Hall ASC talk cinematography. And I'll okay. make sure we have a link in the description. Great. Uh, that is absolutely a the definition of cinema verite, it sounds like. <laughs> um, it really is. Yeah. So I'm going to give a quick company update and we're going to get out of here. But um, over the last couple of weeks, I've been, um, you know, taking care of my father who has Alzheimer's and spending time with him at the beach uh, and in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. And so the only work that's been happening has been in my head as I've thought about different ways that we're going to tell the story heroes of Karen time. One exciting development is that when I was researching at Fort Campbell uh, in the archives there, I discovered a contemporary or a contemporaneous journal that one of the uh, officers had written during the battle of Carenton. Uh It's a tiny little notebook. It's hard to read and it's incredibly exciting. And so I met this guy named Hank Hanna, who was sadly no longer with us, but he kept this journal. Uh, he ended up becoming a teacher and he's just a fascinating character. So we've talked about making him the narrator of this battle of Carenton with his, um, you know, his notes. And so we are still in this writing process trying to figure out how we want to tell this story, connecting the heroes of 1944 with their modern day counterparts who just got back from the border of Ukraine. Um, they're going to be the ones that are telling the stories of their own heroes that, um, you know, helped win the Battle of Carenton. So uh, still in the development process, that's what's happening around here. And 
Yeah. So that's it, Jason, for this week. Well, Craig, thank you so much for being here today. I feel like I've um, learned a lot. I'm just thrilled to have been introduced to your work and uh, to know a little bit about your brother and his life. I'm glad we could remember him today and other people could get to know him a little bit. So thank you so much for your time. It's been an incredible pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. And if people want to learn more about Brent, uh, we do have a foundation. It's the BrentRenaultFoundation.org. And there's lots of information about him and, and a lot of the mentoring that we're doing now. Um, he had always mentored young filmmakers throughout his career, and we're going to continue doing that. Yeah, we'll put that link in the bio. Um, and you talked about, too, maybe working on a masterclass we could watch one day. Yeah, if people want to go to my website, renobrothers.com, um, and get on the email list, I will update people about that. But I am, I am developing. I just, I get approached by young filmmakers and filmmakers at all stages of their career about, um, the way that I make films. And it's a very specific process for cinema verite filmmaking. So I am developing something right now. Well, and I would love to have you back because one of the things that I'm not, I'm trying to crack is understanding uh, how to work with PBS. Um, you know, I really feel like there is a, a challenge right now for independent filmmakers trying to find an avenue for our work. Um, we've talked about this a lot on our podcast with um, our distributor, Joe Amaday of Virgil Films. And um, PBS is still making that possible for these documentary films and series. So um, I'd love to have you back at some point to talk us through that process. Yeah, and my counterpart, um, Courtney Pledger on this would be great to have to talk about that because she's on the national board of PBS. She's the head of Arkansas PBS. Um, and she's also a filmmaker and a creator. So she'd be someone that would have a lot, a lot of knowledge. Great. Well, I will connect with you offline and maybe you can help uh, facilitate that. That would be amazing. Okay. Great. All right. Thank you for your time. Jason, take us out. And thank you all for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you, guys.